My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. By now, if you're lucky, you might know somebody. You might love somebody who has received a vaccine for COVID-19. Now ask yourself a question. Do you know which brand of vaccine they got? Do you care? Right now, that's an easy question. There are only two vaccines available in Canada. The efficacy of both those vaccines is roughly the same, and they are still scarce enough that you would have to be a fool to wait for one over the other. But what about when there are three or four or five approved vaccines? What about when they are widely available and some of them are one dose and others are two? What about when they all have efficacy levels that pass government guidelines, but very widely enough that you can compare between brands? In those cases, would you wait a couple of weeks to get the one that you think is best? Do you know people who will? Do you know people right now, as I do, who are still planning not to get the vaccine at all? And do those people tell you about allergic reactions, about deaths? They aren't making those up. They do happen. It's just that that doesn't mean the vaccines are dangerous at all. Almost two months into Canada's vaccination program, we know that the actual rollout of vaccines is slow. But what about the education program? Do we all know enough about these vaccines and about how they work? Can we convince hesitant family members and neighbors to take them? And do we understand just how long the road back will be if we can't? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Sabina Vora-Miller has a master's in clinical pharmacology. She is a vaccine advocate and she is the co-founder of the Vora Miller Foundation. Hello, Sabina. Hi, Jordan. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Um, we spoke a little while ago, and we talked about vaccine hesitancy and what the uptick is going to be like. And now that we've started to see these vaccines rolled out, I thought we should talk again both about how many people are taking it, but also um, what we're learning as we go. So maybe... Before we get into it, um, I'll ask you something I probably should have asked up front last time, which is, can you explain how these vaccines that we're going to be discussing today work? Sure, that's a great question. Um, so let's talk about our immune system a little. So our immune system is basically designed to attack anything that is foreign to our body. So that would be a virus, a bacteria. Um, and when it encounters something that is new, it takes a while for the body to ramp up its immune system fight squad. Um, there really are two main components to your active immunity. One is like the one that is that is called the innate immunity, which is nonspecific. It's really immediate. It includes a lot of physiologic things like fever, inflammation, um, and also things like macrophages, uh, dendritic cells. 
But then you have the adaptive immunity, which takes longer to ramp up. But this is what includes your powerhouses, like your B-cell antibodies and your T-cells and your memory immunity. And so since it's, uh, since your body has never seen this foreign body before, by the time it's ready to fight back, the foreign body could have already caused a lot of damage. But once it fights off that virus or that bacteria, it produces a special kind of memory immunity called memory B and memory T cells that helps it remember this bad foreign body. So the next time this bad body uh, decides to pay a visit, your body remembers and it's able to put together that fight squad really quickly. But this is where vaccines can be advantageous. So when you vaccinate, you're putting a small amount of either the inactivated or attenuated, which is weakened um, virus or bacteria into the body. So it ramps up this immune response against it. So then later, if your body comes into contact with that actual virus, it knows how to quickly fight it off. So you don't have that lag in terms of fighting off the, the, the bad guy. So that's basically how vaccines work. Um, right now in Canada, we have uh, the mRNA vaccines that have been approved. You know, mRNA is basically that part of our genetic material that gives instructions to the body. So think of it like a recipe card that you use. Um, and so for the COVID-19 vaccines, the mRNA vaccine tells the body to make this harmless piece called a spike protein. And this is what uh, the spike protein is found on the surface of the virus that causes COVID. Um, and so our immune system recognizes that, hey, this protein does not belong here, um, and then begins building that immune response and making those antibodies um, like what you would see in a natural infection. Um, and so these, the, so the two vaccines that we have right now in Canada, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, are both mRNA vaccines. Are all the rest of the COVID vaccines under development right now? All mRNA vaccines? No, they're not. And so there are a couple others that are also currently in development. So in Europe, for instance, you have um, the Oxford vaccine that was created in partnership with AstraZeneca. Now, the Oxford vaccine is basically a modified, weakened version of a common cold virus, which is called the adenovirus. This adenovirus basically acts as a vector. Um, and what it does is that the DNA for the spike protein is inside this adenovirus. And so when you get injected with the adenovirus, our cells sort of eat this up. And then what our cells do is that because we have that gene for the coronavirus spike protein, this can be read by our cells. And then it's copied into a molecule called the mRNA, which we just discussed. And the mRNA then is able to code for the spike protein. So the Oxford vaccine is this adenovirus viral vector based vaccine. And then you also have another one, which is the Johnson & Johnson or the Janssen one. So both the Oxford AstraZeneca as well as the Johnson & Johnson adenovirus uh, Adenovirus vaccine vectors are currently in phase three development. Um, we have some interim data from the Oxford one already, and we're expecting data from the phase three of the Johnson Johnson to be available um, end of this month or so. And they're both under um, rolling submissions with Health Canada. So here's the big question, which is uh, why do I and other ordinary folks Need to know the details of the differences between these vaccines. Uh, I don't know what kind of vaccines uh, 
I was given as a child or that even I consented to my daughter being given. I know what she was being vaccinated against. I don't know how they work. Why do I need to know how these ones work? And why uh, why have we had such detailed discussions about that? Because you've been talking a lot about misinformation around how these things work. Yeah, that's a great question. And so I think that most of the time, you know, with even with other vaccines, there are a variety of different kinds that are available, but we just don't even know that. You know, when we go to see our physician, we don't know which one of the hepatitis B vaccines we're getting, right? right? I think there's just been so much focus on the vaccine developments and people are trying different things and trying different platforms to get this out there um, that everyone's become really heavily invested into all of these. Um, the other thing also is that, you you know, there are some minor differences in things like efficacy between the various kinds. And I think that, um, you know, because of that, there has been a lot of discussion on the different types of vaccines and who has developed what. Uh, several countries have also put in funding for certain types of vaccines. So they're more inclined towards the vaccines that they are um, funding themselves as well. But the bottom line is that, you know, when, when it comes down to the various kinds of vaccines and the position that we are in today, where we, you know, have very limited doses of the vaccines, we basically should be getting the vaccine that we are offered. So whichever one that we're offered at this point, um, we should be encouraging people to take that vaccine, remembering that um, even if there are differences in efficacy, the bottom line is that if they're approved, they're meeting efficacy thresholds. Um, and we are seeing from, you know, preliminary reports that the vaccinations are preventing severe illnesses as well. So the longer, um, you know, if people decide to not take the vaccine that is offered to them, it's basically opening them up and their loved ones to possible infections and even death. Well, right now, that makes a ton of sense because um, we only have Pfizer and Moderna in Canada. Um, as everybody listening to this probably knows, they've been in really short supply right now. Um, but, you know, when we start to get into April and May and later uh, and millions of doses of these vaccines and, and potentially millions more uh, of other new vaccines become available, what do you think we see um, in doctor's offices, in hospital settings? Are people going to become picky about which vaccines they get? Um, will they even be allowed that choice? I mean, again, I feel like I know way more about these vaccines than I ever have before. And you know, uh, I will take whatever one's offered to me. But if somebody said I could have whichever one I wanted, I actually know the efficacy of them now in a way I never have before. Yeah. And I think that if we're at a point where we have, for instance, you know, when we're in tier three or vaccinations and we may have four vaccines available at that time that are approved, we've, um, you know, our, our government has um, basically allocated for millions of doses of all of these different kinds of vaccines. So we might be in a position where people have that choice and that option to choose which one they want. And I think having that choice and that option is important. And I think that it will help people, you know, empower their decisions and feel more control. I think especially when we're having concerns and discussions on vaccine confidence and vaccine hesitancy, putting that decision into people's hands can actually be beneficial in terms of them getting vaccinated. I think the bottom line is, as long as people are choosing a vaccine and taking the vaccine, that is the most important part. Um, and I can, I can see situations 
questions, you know, I have come across a lot of people saying, you know, I'm not entirely sure if I want to take the mRNA vaccine. I would much prefer waiting for the Oxford one when it comes. And these are people who are not in the priority um, vaccination schedule. And if, if, you know, in a couple of months when we have all of these vaccines available, sure, by all means, choose the Oxford vaccine. And I think having that choice, if we have the accessibility to them, is a good thing to have. Speaking of choosing to get vaccinated or not, the last time we spoke was just before uh, needles were going into arms in Canada. Now we've had about six weeks or more of it. Has the uptick met your expectations? Are we seeing uh, the levels needed to get to herd immunity if everybody takes it? So currently we're basically focusing on frontline healthcare workers and long-term care homes. And what we've seen in the long-term care homes is a huge divide uh, based on who is accepting the vaccine and who isn't. So residents of long-term care homes have a very high uptake of the vaccine, close to 90% um, when offered. However, with respect to some of the healthcare workers that are working in LTC, so you know your PSWs, um, we're seeing a much lower uptake and it varies between 20 to 70 percent. And I know Toronto Public Health has talked about it being closer to around 40 to 50 percent. And I think that this is not surprising, but at the same time, it is very disappointing. And I think that's because a lot of um, education has really not been done on the vaccination. So there was a a survey done with uh, Canadian PSW workers, and they were asked whether they felt the education was sufficient on the on the vaccines and 70% said that they didn't feel comfortable because they didn't have that education on it. Um, And some of the concerns that are coming up are very valid concerns in these PSWs because um, majority of them are racialized women. They're usually in their childbearing ages. They have concerns with respect to um, effects on pregnancy, effects on fertility. Um, And I think that because we've had that back and forth um, with respect to whether the vaccines are recommended in pregnancy or not, it has caused some form of apprehension um, with PSWs. And so I think that there is a lot of uh, room to actually do some of that education. For instance, I have a friend of mine who works um, as a healthcare worker in an LTC, and she messaged me and said, you know, she wasn't sure whether she should be taking the vaccine or not. She's trying for another baby. Um, And she was told that uh, the vaccination was not recommended for those who are trying to get pregnant. So I had a half hour discussion with her on all of the data, um, especially in terms of how COVID itself can be a risk factor in pregnancy. And I was happy to hear that she did sign up to get the vaccine. And she also convinced um, her colleagues to, to get the vaccine. And so a simple discussion like that um, turned her from, uh, from refusing the vaccine to actually getting all of her colleagues uh, vaccinated as well. So I think that education plays a really huge um, and important role in this. Now that we are seeing that divide between people in long-term care facilities and the workers who, as you pointed out, tend to be racialized, how can you effectively communicate to people of color uh, who, as I learned from talking to them, and and there's been a couple of high-profile editorials written this week, you know, whose family often have firsthand trauma uh, via the medical system in their past and and simply don't trust it, you know, that That seems to me like a really hard conversation to have, but one we probably need to meet head on if we're going to get this done. 
Uh, and that's very, very, very true. I think that there has been a long-standing history of racism and discrimination in healthcare um, with a lot of the racialized populations. And I think that w- this is one of the things that we absolutely cannot ignore. I think that what's really important is to have these discussions with people that um, racialized uh, populations and communities have trust with. So this could be perhaps someone within their communities, um, someone perhaps from their religious communities as well. It could also be someone who's been providing them that primary care or their community health centers that have been invested in their well-being. I think that having people that you trust do some of this discussion and this education is incredibly important um, because you have to understand that if you're telling a racialized person that, hey, Health Canada and the government have looked at this and they say it's safe, that really is meaningless to a lot of the racialized people who have this, this distrust, um, you know, with respect to healthcare, with respect to government. And very often they feel like their lives are not valued. And so if their lives are not valued, then how do you actually trust that this information that you're getting from the government or Health Canada is actually trustworthy. So if this information really cannot be coming from some of those higher government bodies, I think that there has to be a lot of groundwork that needs to be done from the communities itself to try and increase and uh, you know awareness using the trust and the relationships that communities have already have with the people that are in their in their communities. The other thing that's really important to do is to ensure that if you're having this information out there, that it's actually accessible. There are so many people, even within the South Asian population, that not that do not necessarily know how to read or write English. And this is this is you know we have a very diverse population here in in Canada. And I think what we need to be doing is converting a lot of this information into various languages. Um, we also need to be using different formats. So sometimes you know a ten-page dry document on vaccine information is not really necessarily how we should be doing it. Should we perhaps be looking at videos? Should we look at infographics, different formats? Um, And we also should be looking at different mediums. And, you know, and so not everyone, you know, reads the Toronto Star, not everyone watches um, CBC News. Um, You know, we should be trying to get this information out in mediums that people are consuming. And for instance, you know, with the the South Asian population, there's a significant portion of trucking that uh, people who are trucking, you know, only have access to, say, radio. So, you know, we should be targeting um, mediums that people are actually consuming. I'm not even joking when I say this stuff needs to be on TikTok like all the time. I completely agree. And so TikTok, again, you're focusing on a specific population, your younger population that, you know, is at the moment, of course, we don't have vaccinations for. Um, but as we have some of that data in the younger population, the uh, the adolescent population, the, like TikTok is going to be so important as well to raise awareness. I want to ask you about some of the reports that we've been seeing. Um, I was going to call them misinformation, but they're not, actually. They're completely factual pieces of information uh, about people having allergic reactions uh, to the COVID vaccinations, to older people uh, passing away shortly after getting uh, the vaccine, I think – uh, a former baseball star, Hank Aaron, died last week, and it turned out that he had had the vaccine um, a couple of weeks ago. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean the vaccine caused his death, but we are seeing these reports of person gets vaccine, uh, person either has allergic reaction or gets COVID or dies. And obviously, that's a very small percentage. But 
How are we reporting this stuff and is it responsible and and is there a better way to convey what may happen without harming the movement to get people vaccinated? So I think, first of all, what we need to do is to have education campaigns on side effects of vaccines. I think a lot of people don't realize that, you know, side effects, first of all, your basic side effects, things like that are mild and transient, that last one to three days, you know, such as pain at injection site, your fatigue, muscle aches, fever. These are all, these all mean that your immune system is gearing into action. So this is a good sign. Um, Very often we are hearing reports of people who get the first dose, have some of these side effects, and then don't want to come for the second dose because they say that they reacted to the first dose. So I think, first of all, what we need to be doing is education on the fact that side effects can occur. They're mostly mild and transient. It means your immune system is working. Um, and so that, you know, we have to ensure that people are actually going back to get their second dose, which is incredibly important. Um, but then you also do have instances of allergic reactions. And I think it's important to remember that allergic reactions can happen to anything, to any food you eat, um, to an- anything in the environment. Um, we, you know, and so we see these, uh, these occurring with essentially everything. What we need to remember is that the incidence of these is still really uh, low and extremely rare. So with respect to the allergic reactions that we've seen with the COVID mRNA vaccine so far is around 5.5 with 1 million uh, doses. And I mean, putting that into perspective with influenza, we see around two per 1 million doses. So, you know, it's very similar in in terms of it being extremely rare. Um, And I think that we should be, we should be aware that Yes, an allergic reaction can occur, um, but it can also occur, you know, with with Tylenol. It can also occur with peanuts. It can occur with basically anything that we uh, we consume, we and we ingest. And so, you know, that putting that into perspective is really important. With respect to some of the the case reports that we've heard of uh, unfortunate deaths, um, I'm definitely very saddened to hear about some of these deaths. Um, but what we don't know right now is causality. We don't know if the vaccines have actually caused that or, or is there something else that um, was leading up to it that could have resulted into it. We don't know in terms of timing what happened. We don't know what occurred, you know, a couple of weeks before a couple of weeks after the vaccine. Right. All of this is information we don't have, which is why a full investigation for any of these uh, case reports must be done to actually discern whether it actually was related to the vaccine or was it a completely unrelated event. You know, you can have two completely unrelated events happen um, at similar times, but it does not mean that one led to the other. Um, the other thing what we really need to remember and we have to put into perspective is that millions and millions Millions of these doses have been given worldwide. And we're hearing about some of, you know, the case reports are very far and few in between. Um, On the flip side, putting into perspective, in Ontario uh, alone, we're seeing nearly 100 people dying every single day from COVID. Um, And so, you know, when we're looking at numbers, when we're looking at protection, I think it's very important to remember um, that COVID is an extremely um, dangerous disease and and it is killing Uh, people at a much higher rate. The last thing I want to ask you about is um, the story that as as we talk on Tuesday is currently uh, going viral about the rich couple that jetted up uh, way up in the Northern Hemisphere to 
jumped the queue, essentially, uh, in a very small village to get the COVID vaccination. Did you uh, follow this story? I did. Uh, and it's it's really unfortunate. It really is a broader discussion on access and privilege. Um, and uh, and I, I can't even begin to put into words how disappointed I was reading about that story. I think that, you know, we're taking stock away from people who are incredibly high risk populations. Um, and there's just so many ethical and moral issues with, with that. I, I don't even know where to begin with it. I was really upset to hear about that happening. I have one way to look at it. Um, and maybe you can tell me that this is crazy. Obviously, um, they should lock those folks up for trying to, to jump the queue and take vaccinations away from vulnerable people. On the other hand, if we are trying to convince everybody to agree to get vaccinated, doesn't it help that rich people are willing to pay obscene amounts of money to get them before everybody else? Doesn't that make people more likely to want them and to think that this must be good? <laughs> That's a great point. Um, you know, and I think that if we want that to happen, I think that we should be asking. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't agree with this. But I mean, if the, if there was a circumstance where we could have people jump the queue, I think that people should be asked to pay obscene amounts of money if they right. have the ability to do that. <laughs> And put that money into funding for healthcare, um, you know, to make it more equitable and make it more accessible for all the other um, folks. I mean, that is one way of looking at it. I mean, if they're willing to charter a private plane, um, that sounds a pretty good message that this vaccine is something everyone wants. I realize it's horrible, but that was my first thought. That is true. But let's maybe put a price tag on it. If you're able to charter a plane to go get your vaccine, you're able to pay $100,000 for the vaccine. And let's put that $100,000 into some of our community um, healthcare resources. That would be very helpful. Um, Sabina, thank you so much for, for talking us through this and for uh, indulging my idiocy at the end. <laughs> it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you. Sabina Vora Miller of the Vora Miller Foundation. That was The Big Story. For more from us, including our previous episode with Sabina, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. Do not tag in any anti-vax people. I do not want to engage. You can also email us. Again, don't share the email address with auntie who doesn't want to get vaccinated. Or do, and I'll pass her to Sabina. The email address is thebigstorypodcast at rci.rogers.com. And of course, we are wherever you get your podcasts and Apple and Google and Stitcher and Spotify. Leave us a rating, leave us a review, unless you hated this episode, in which case do not even bother. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. <laughs>